0: You know, we all just experienced 2023, which was a truly brutal, historically brutal year in terms of climate impacts. Uh, Literally millions of people were affected by climate impacts from deaths, to injuries, to illnesses. Uh, Tremendous harm uh, caused all over the world, billions of dollars of economic damage. Unfortunately, climate change is not a theoretical and distant thing anymore. It is absolutely hitting every part of the planet uh, uh, at the same time. And unfortunately, 2024 is looking very likely to be at least as bad, if not worse, uh, mostly because we still are in the middle of an El Nino. So it's just to say the impacts and the reality of climate change is absolutely here. And that's where we keep talking about this finally being the decisive decade. We basically have now, we're in the middle of that decisive decade, relatively limited time now to start dramatically reducing carbon pollution which is causing this climate change impacts that we're we're talking about all over the world. And that's really the question. Will humanity have the public and political will to do what is necessary to basically limit global warming to a relatively safe and stable climate?
1: That's the founder and director of the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication and a senior research scientist at the Yale School of the Environment. Yes, that's Tony Leisowitz. Tony is an expert on public climate change and environmental beliefs, attitudes, policy, preferences, and behavior, and the psychological, cultural, and political factors that shape them. He was speaking on a briefing organized by Potential Energy. Yes, welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I am your host, Robert McLean. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia. On the lands of the Yorta Yorta people, yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people. I pay my respects to elders, past, present, and emerging. Now let's listen now to this briefing from Potential Energy.
2: Okay, welcome. Um, I think we'll get going. I think a few people are still signing on. We have a. uh uh, a lot of folks joining us this morning, or this afternoon, or this evening, depending on what part of the world um, you are in. Thank you all so much for joining this briefing. Um, I wanted this is John Marshall from Potential Energy. I'm the founder and CEO of Potential Energy, the organization that spearheaded this work. I wanted to start by introducing our partners, uh, who will also be speaking and, and presenting. Uh, Jessica Liu, um, in our strategy and analytics department, was the uh, was the person who led this research, and we'll be hearing for her, from her over the next hour. We also have Tony Lazarowitz, uh, leader of the Yale uh, Program for Climate Change Communications and Tom Brooks who leads GSCC and the Melior Foundation who are our partners in this work. Thank you all for joining us. We're gonna dive right in um, and uh, uh, give you an overview of the learnings that we had. So just as background, I think most folks who signed up for this probably know what, uh, what we're here for, but over the last over the summer of last year, we embarked uh, with our partners on a very large scale uh, piece of messaging research in the G20 plus some other countries. Uh, It was conducted over the summer and the goal was really to understand where the world is with respect uh, to citizen support for climate action and most importantly, what could we do to impact it? So our goal in this meeting is to share our findings in the spirit of uh, collectively advancing the state of knowledge and giving everyone on this call some tools, some tips, some advice, some messages and some insights that we hope are useful to the broader climate change community. So with that in mind, this is the the gang you'll be hearing from. Um, And uh, welcome, Tom, Jessica, and Tony. Um, Quick note about Potential Energy as we're a relatively new player, uh, much newer than the Yale Center for Climate Change Communications and and Tom's team at GSCC. We're a marketing firm uh, that uses the analytics and creative storytelling of the private sector to create public demand for climate solutions. And so what we are trying to do with this work is really bring the toolkit of the private sector, um, deep analytics, particular focus on message testing and uh, real world testing to create the narratives that, we, that can help us dramatically accelerate the energy transition around the world. Um, what we're gonna go through, and I'll turn it over to Tony and Tom for a brief introduction over the course of the next hour is why did we do this research? what did we learn, what we think uh, are the elements of messaging that can be a key difference maker to progress on climate change, and then leave about 15 minutes at the end of the hour uh, for Q&A. So before I do that, I would love to turn it over to our partners at Yale and GSCC and Melior to talk a little bit about their views on the context of the research. And then we'll turn it over uh, to Jessica and I to go through the the data findings. Tony, can I flip it to you?
0: Sure. Uh, Thank you, John. And welcome, everybody. Happy 2024. Um, so for those who don't know me, my name is Anthony Lajewitz. I'm a faculty member at the Yale School of the Environment where I direct the Yale program on climate change communication. We study how people around the world are responding to climate change. And so this uh, really is a, an incredible piece of work that I'm excited to uh, really support John in sharing with you. Uh, and look, just to kind of frame this out in terms of big picture to remind us all, you know, we all just experienced 2023, which was a truly brutal, historically brutal year in terms of climate impacts. Uh, Literally, millions of people were affected by climate impacts from deaths to injuries to illnesses, Uh, tremendous harm uh, caused all over the world, billions of dollars of economic damage. Unfortunately, climate change is not a theoretical and distant thing anymore. It is absolutely hitting every part of the planet uh, uh, at the same time. And unfortunately, 2024 is looking very likely to be at least as bad, if not worse, uh, mostly because we still are in the middle of an El Nino. So it's just to say. The impacts and the reality of climate change is absolutely here, and that's where we keep talking about this finally being the decisive decade. We basically have now, we're in the middle of that decisive decade, relatively limited time now to start dramatically reducing carbon pollution, which is causing this climate change impacts that we're we're talking about all over the world, and that's really the question. Will humanity have the public and political will to do what is necessary to basically limit global warming to a relatively safe and stable climate, for a relatively safe and stable climate. And so what we know is that the public is going to play a critical role in that, uh, both in terms of its support for policymakers who have to take bold action to increase the speed and scale of the transition to clean energy and, and of course, reducing fossil fuel use as well as land use change. Uh, But we can't forget that Uh, The public also plays a critical role as their roles as consumers. Billions of people are going to have to choose the products and services that ultimately are going to uh, help us with this transition. Uh, And they have to raise their voices as citizens to demand these actions uh, and these changes from both their governments and business. So with that context, uh, we're really excited to share this particular piece of research with you. And just one last thing to really emphasize is that this is focusing on mitigation. Here we're looking at the 23 countries that collectively are responsible and will be responsible for over 80% of future emissions. So they literally hold the future of the world in their hands. The decisions that these countries make is going to basically determine the outcome of climate change. What it doesn't include and this study doesn't focus on is, of course, all the other countries that are absolutely getting hit first and worst. And so I just want to make that clear. We're really focusing in this study on the mitigation question. How do we reduce emissions to try to maintain that safe and stable climate? Not so much on the preparedness and adaptation piece, which is absolutely critical, but was outside the scope of this work. Um, So anyway, uh, there's some really interesting things here. Thank you, John, and thank you to GSCC for all the work you did as part of this. There's such a huge team behind this, but uh, we're really eager to share some of these top line results. Uh, Back to you, John.
2: Terrific. Tom, I'll I'll turn it to you quickly and then we'll dive into the data.
3: Sure thing. Thanks, John. Uh, Thanks, Tony. I mean, not a huge amount to add. Um, As I said, we're excited to kind of share share the findings on this. Um, and, you know, obviously some of it confirms things that we know. There is, where there is decent levels of public understanding um, of the climate crisis, there is a, there is also, you find, um, significant levels of support for action to address the, the crisis, obviously. What we also know is that public support on its own doesn't necessarily translate immediately into ambitious climate policy. Um, there are plenty of countries where you have huge public support uh, for governments doing more, but they're not doing more. So there are there are, you know, this is one part of a flotilla, obviously, of approaches that are needed, but without public support, a lot of other um of other of those approaches don't work or work work a lot less well. And so this is really key. And I think the other thing we were trying to look at with this research, and I think that you'll see it's it's proved very useful from that perspective, is framing essentially, is are there quite kind of are there frames that work across communities, across countries even, across regions even? Are there big frames that we know can carry particular types of messaging, particular work on, you know, in insider work on kind of policy development or more, more uh focused um ab- advocacy and, and strategic communications work? to support particular outcomes and again i think that this 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 uh, attempt to kind of understand some of those frames understand how they work across different communities and populations um is hopefully going to prove very useful and we're uh, we're very happy to share it with the community and, and I hope it can help support your work and existing and uh looking forward to hearing the questions that you may have um in terms of in terms of how this this can help um and other inputs on on how we should be using it to help the plethora of approaches that is required to make change.
2: Perfect. Thanks, Tom. Okay, let's dive in. Um, so gonna go through four things little little overview that I'll do on, on why we did this and then hand it over to Jessica. You know, I think we need to dramatically accelerate the transition. Our strong hypothesis or um, strong belief is that without the necessary uh, support, we're not going to be able to achieve that. And so what we um, really believe is that climate action at scale does depend on public support. The changes we need require active government leadership, and governments are rightly mindful of what their constituents will and won't support. So what we're trying to solve for uh, is, uh, what are the messages that do that? I think just a quick note, like we, as as potentially our energy background is a bunch of folks from the commercial sector who uh, are trying to bring that toolkit into climate change. and we are radically people first. Uh, we are st- All of our insights are coming from what are we hearing, what are we measuring, what are we observing, what are we feeling, and we don't necessarily bring any preconceptions in here. We also test, uh, we try and test as much as possible uh, from observing uh, how people react as opposed to acting how people feel, uh, asking how people feel. And so what you'll see in this research is a fair amount of randomized controlled trials. In our uh, campaign work that we do, We've served and measured about 3 billion ads, and we are looking to observe how different messages affect people, which is slightly different than a purely polling approach, which is asking people what they like and don't like. There's a significant amount of statistical measurement of message impact in this work. We also really believe that we need powerful human stories that move people, and fundamentally, all of our decisions of potential energy are driven by data. Okay, so hand it over to Jessica, who can go through the results uh, of the work.
4: Thanks, John. And uh, Thank you, Tony and Tom as well. Excited to be with everyone here today. Um, and so starting off, what were we trying to do in the study? We sought to answer two core questions. Does the world want action on climate? And how can we motivate the public to accelerate progress? So we ran this survey in 23 countries covering the G20. It had over 60,000 respondents representing 70% of global population, 80% of emissions, 90% of GDP. Um, and a quick overview of the design and methodology. We measured baseline attitudes conducted, as Sean was talking about, RCT to identify effective macro narratives, underlying principles and values and motivations. This study was an online study. Um, and so, of course, we were not able to reach people who were not online, but we strove to ensure that it was as representative as possible um, and to stress test some of our hypotheses with regard to those populations. So starting with the good news, or rather the silver lining, the world, in fact, does want action on climate. Uh, It seems simple, but it's worth emphasizing that after several years of our team's work on this, many, many hours in focus groups and testing, it does feel like something has changed, something is changing, and that the moment is now. The data and the qualitative research both bear this out. It feels like the world is awakening to the crisis, uh, but now we actually have to fight the fight. Uh, The support that we found was overwhelming. Supporters outnumber opposers by eight to one. And that support uh, is also really universal. So we were rather surprised to find this, but majority support exists in every country, the countries in our study. Um, And this support was also true across age and gender and educational attainment, which which we really didn't expect. This finding was further validated when we spoke to real people on the ground. So we did deep dive focus groups in eight countries, recruited from moderates in these countries, where we probed them over the course of two to three days. Uh, So before we get more into the numbers, we wanted to share how people around the world were thinking about climate change in their own words and on their own terms.
1: Jessica Liu included a short film clip in which people were speaking many different languages. Those short pieces have been deleted, and we go back to where... The speakers are using english
5: here in my home province of alberta the fires have been burning um, all all summer already Um, the skies are you know sometimes the air is unbreathable
0: we had a natural disaster which is the flooding that was happening in Durban. we didn't have water for so many days
3: heats and climatic change global warming it becomes very difficult to stay out for a very long time
4: I'm concerned for my kids. I'm really concerned
3: for my kids. And I'm really concerned that there is, um, zero, zero policy.
2: It's something that the world is ignoring. Only a minority focuses on it. But what about the majority? What about
4: everybody else that will have being impacted by climate change? So having heard this, you may have thought, wow, they sound like activists, but these people really were moderates. And so it's, again, interesting to see uh, when it comes to public sentiment, it does feel like we're now playing on different terrain. Uh, We understand that the way into climate is different around the world. For example, air pollution tends to matter a lot more in places like China and India. And in Brazil, conservation in the environment has much more saliency than climate change itself. But what's fascinating, surprising, and encouraging is that we actually are united on how we see the problem in several important ways. The first is that every country sees it as an issue of this generation's responsibility to act. When we asked whether it was this generation or about the next, most people and most countries you can see are very much on the left side. And second, every country saw this as an issue of global well-being over uh, national interests. So when we asked whether we needed to protect everyone or whether it was about protecting ourselves, there's slightly more spread and variance, but we more or less agree it's about protecting everyone people in our movement like to debate, is an individual problem or is a systems problem? I think it's quite interesting that we found most people know it's up to corporations and fossil fuel producers to take action and not really about uh, citizens or individuals themselves. However, even though broad support is high, when it comes down to the specific actions, it's a much closer call. And we wanted to know, which policies felt right before the taking and which ones do we need to continue to build more support for? And how can we do that uh, with maximal effectiveness? So looking at a number of other preeminent climate think tanks who have already done the rigorous analysis on the types of policies we need, we condensed and simplified them. And we tested these under a competitive lens. So each policy territory was framed in three different pro-climate ways, and we pitted it against an opposing argument. I'll get to some of those learnings and details from this in a bit. But Um, on the next slide. What's interesting to see is that uh, many of these, actually all of these, already have majority and significant support. So all of these policies here have more than 50% support, but of course, some are much higher than others. And when it comes to the specific geographies, different policies will get much harder and much more competitive. The difference in winning and losing can be um, between 10 to 20 points, depending on how we frame them. Uh, What comes to the top, um, our frames about limiting pollution and setting more ambitious goals for clean energy. So the first one, uh, replacing coal with clean, really a testament to the decades of campaigning the movement has been doing against coal. Others that come to the top, subsidizing uh, corporations for more clean energy, putting limits on carbon pollution, setting ambitious clean energy targets and goals are some of the most popular policies already. Support for these policies exists across all countries, uh, noting that the US has the lowest am- support amongst their countries of study in general. And probably unsurprisingly, we did find that fossil intense economies tend to over-index on awareness and on the on, on awareness on the issue and knowledge about the issue, but they also exhibited less support. And some of this is likely directly attributable to how much fossil fuel companies have invested in comms and advertising over the last few decades and where the debate is much more entrenched. Uh, Many of us work on climate in the U.S. here, uh, where we face a particularly acute and severe problem of political polarization. Uh, But beyond the top five countries here on this list, so U.S., Norway, Canada, Australia, Germany, we didn't really observe this dynamic um, being as as big in, uh, in, in the other countries. So when you dig deep at that, you can see where the polarization comes from. Uh, Across the 82 major political parties that we were able to analyze in the study, only six parties didn't have simple majorities for pro-climate policies. For the most part, um, other countries, as you can see in this chart, India, um, across from the left to the right, uh, the gap in support, um, depending on your ideology, is way less extreme. Whereas the U.S., as you go from the left to the right, you start to notice a huge uh, gap. We are building some tools on this data set so that everyone can access this, uh, but as an example, and what you'll also be able to find in the report is at the country level, looking at um, how support varies by party. So this example is from the UK. You can see that the Conservative Party um, has uh, generally high support for most of these policies, 15 out of 18, there's majority support. Uh, but the ones at the bottom, as an example, phasing out oil extraction or phasing out uh, fossil fuels are um, have less than simple majority support. And as another example, uh, in Brazil, you can see that there's high consensus and high support for something like replacing uh, coal with clean energy. Of course, Brazil's grid is already quite clean, so it's less of an issue. And where the battle becomes much harder are on those policies at the bottom, ending fracking, phasing out oil extraction. And so it becomes pretty clear that choosing where to play and what to say will matter a lot. Um, I mentioned that we were testing support for policies under three different frames and pitted them against uh, an opposition. So this next slide that maps out um, by country the support you can get under the most effective frame. You can see there's quite quite, uh, a lot of variation across countries and across policies themselves. So I think a lot of people know about or have heard about what's been happening in Germany over the last year. Um, When we look at Germany as a case study, I wanted to draw your attention to two policy territories we tested, upgrading new buildings and zero pollution transportation, uh, which are just just above the halfway mark at 51 and 57%. So they're fairly close calls. These are now the subject of very heated debates. It's an example of why it will be really important that we communicate these policies in a way that builds support rather than cause backlash and stall progress. So if we want to win We must create demand, and this is where messaging can come in and be the difference maker. Um, One thing at Potential Energy that we've learned over and over again, we have to meet people where they are. As John likes to say, no one wakes up thinking, what a great day for some decarbonization. So when we think about the phrases and messages that we talk about in our bubble, stick to 1.5 for Paris to create jobs and growth, what we have to keep in mind is that the world does not speak climate. Um, And in fact, the majority believe that four degrees is the target um, that the UN has set to limit temperature, which I think we all know if that was a reality would be very disastrous. Um, And so uh, I think keeping in mind, again, the world doesn't speak climate. Um, Our messages about sacrifice um, aren't really going to work. So when we asked whether people needed to accept a lower standard of living, Um, to solve climate, or whether we can solve it through technology and innovation, most people are inclined to agree with the right side, except for the French, which we're not quite sure why. But Mm -hmm. uh, most people agree that tech and innovation will get us there. Ineffective frames, um, particularly ones about limiting choice or banning things, lose us critical support when it comes to actually winning the policies that we need. And so this is where Um, I had mentioned earlier, the way that we describe these policies and communicate these policies can be a game-changing tool to help us get these uh, critical actions needed onto the ground. Um, And it often means, and the data suggests, that these frames are not big enough and they risk backlash. So where does that leave us? Overall support is high, but as we've all seen, that doesn't translate directly into wins on the ground. None of this is happening in a vacuum. There are stories from our side, but there are competing stories from the other side. Um, But despite all this, we did find the most important thing that we were looking for, which is a big unifying narrative that taps into our shared motivations to make us more effective, to tip the balance and ultimately help us win. Um, And essentially, what we were looking for is a big why effective marketing, as John was saying, starts with people and their why and the big why for climate isn't about jobs. It's not really about prosperity. uh, It's not even about the cost of extreme weather, which is um, though that is a good one. The big why for climate is uh, protecting the future for the next generation. That was 12 times more effective than some of these other reasons to act that we had asked. And so when we tested that, if you go to the next slide, we tested three mega narratives around the globe across 23 countries. Um, the first message around uh, later is too late. We need to act now to protect the planet for the next generation. A second message around making polluters pay about fairness and about accountability. And a third message, climate progress is here. Uh, how can we build a better future? Uh, we're already making progress towards our goals. When we tested those around the globe, what we found is that when framed in the right way, the urgent generational message that said later is too late uh, moved people everywhere. And so uh, I tend to have an understated presentation style, but I cannot overstate how significant this is. Um, They, these are really big lifts. It was two and a half times the efficacy of our average message that we've put into our CTs. This was by far the most effective, the most universal message in our marketing work. Uh, in the US, where we run campaigns against millions of people, we see this reflected in the billions of data points that we get back, that when we talk about this, uh, about the urgency to act for our kids, for what we love, uh, it is, it moves people a lot. Um, And not only does it move people in the US, it moves people around the world. Um, It worked really well in all of our countries particularly in Latin America and in Asia, where we saw a lift in the high teens. So we were increasing support by 16 to 17 to 18 percent in some cases. And so what that tells us is when we message climate well, we can move people. And it moved people across um, all segments, Um, across men and women, across age groups. Contrary to expectations, older folks were just as persuaded as younger people it moved people across education and income. But I think most importantly and interestingly, we saw it moved people on the left, center, and right. And so I think to us, the data is saying repeatedly, what is the thing that matters most? It's our love for the next generation, protecting all the things that we care about so that they have a livable and safe future.
1: Jessica was talking to Slides and, and to actually be able to see them, the conversation made much more sense this event was being recorded, and as soon as that's available, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. So check that out. Let's go back now to John Marshall.
2: Thanks, Jessica. That was great. Really um good stuff. So I'm gonna just pull up a little bit and give some high-level takeaways. I'm gonna just present a couple of pages and then uh we can open it up for QA. I think I always like to ask myself. What would I have guessed before we did this work? Would we have would we have seen? Um and how is this different? And I think we we had a lot of debates internally, uh, because we, we're certainly aware that the context, the political context, the cultural context, the social context, the extreme weather context is different country by country. And from our from our for-profit work, we always we always wonder: okay, to what extent can a unifying narrative work across different segments or does one need more of a multi-brand player? How do you think about this? And quite honestly, we were really surprised that in every single country, in every single segment, uh, in every rural, uh, uh, urban, rich, poor, less aware of climate, more aware of climate, a very simple, powerful message called later is too late, really moved people a lot. Like we're talking about double digit moves in these RCTs and normally we see three to 4%. So. Point number one that I really wanna land with the broader community is when we message well, we can really move the needle throughout the globe and we need a lot more of that, especially in countries like in the developing world and the global south that don't hear a lot about climate, a very simple message about the nature of the problem, a big why, which is to protect the planet for the next generation and a marker of urgency as in later is too late, moved people significantly. So let's do more and let's do more together and let's do more in a united way. And surprisingly, uh, uh, there is a, there actually is a universal message on this. Um, I think the second point that I wanna make is that better messaging can get the policies we need over the goal line. Um, You've got uh, a lot of investment that is made to preserve the status quo, uh, probably 10 to 20 to maybe 30 times what we invest to create the the change we need for climate. Uh, And as a consequence, we're probably not gonna have the same amount of messaging resources, but um, we can lift, the difference between a good message for a policy and a bad message for a policy is as much as 20 points. So if you wanna we want to do something on building decarb, we're gonna be 20 points more effective if we don't talk about banning gas stoves or banning your boilers, if we talk about upgrading uh, buildings and making them healthier and, safety and safer. So the impact on good messaging on policies is significant, and if we had to boil it down to three things that we learned from this research, it would be radical simplicity, time to bail out on the greenhouse gases, net zero, decarbonization, 1.5 degrees, all that kind of stuff. Uh, push yourselves to not do it. It's not necessary. Go with frames that exist in people's minds already, like pollution frames, uh, and um, scrap the scrap the techno babble and, and get out of the climate bubble. We have seen over and over again how much Uh, of a difference that makes, especially communicating climate as a pollution problem. Secondly, uh, and the data really screams this, it is tempting to have economic or conceptual arguments about all these side door arguments, like uh, let's create more jobs or look at the prosperity or ABC and all these different philosophies over and over and over again, simple human stories that are relevant, which are about protecting the things that you love, do way better, than academic conceptual arguments. And it is, there have been these facts that have happened in climate where like, oh, maybe we shouldn't say climate, maybe we should say clean energy, or maybe we need to you know, talk, don't be fear oriented, be optimism oriented, or talk about the solution. Everyone has this particular point of view. The data is clear. The data says when you make it relevant to the things that that particular human uh, values and loves, you move the needle. And the, the trends toward trying to go in the side door do not beat the reality of the data that says we need to go on the front door. We can talk about climate, we can talk about its impact, we, we can talk about it in the way um, that we mention the things that matter to people. And I think the third really big learning uh, that the data screams to us, you know, from this study, but also from the many, many other things that we've done is limitation is losing. We need to talk about abundance. We gotta get rid of the words ban uh, or mandate uh, in all the different, in all the things that we do. We may feel that that's important as climate communicators, What we feel doesn't matter. It's what the person on the other end of the message feels. And the data is very clear that limitation is a losing argument. I think the third thing that I've been mentioning here is the big why for climate isn't jobs, prosperity, or the cost of extreme weather. It's love for the next generation. That is true whether you're in Indonesia, whether you're in South Africa, whether you're in Brazil, or whether in the United Kingdom or any other country. It is a universal truth that the big why is talking about the things that people care the most about. In policy sectors, yes, we need to talk about jobs and economic growth and so forth, but we cannot let that bubble language bleed into the the overall language. We need to start with consumers and start with what they care about. And we're seeing 12 times more effective messaging about uh, protect the planet for the next generation than we are about jobs. We need to face up to the fact that uh, this is a much more effective message. And I think the final thing I'd love to land with you is, we really like this line. Later is too late. I think it it did extremely well as a tagline, and it has baked into it a thing that we in the commercial marketing sector really uh, have come to know and love, which is a buy now urgency piece of it. And so, later is too late has been a has been a line uh, that's done very well for us, and we highly recommend people using it. And you know, while it's a sort of a potential energy asset, we would love to see the community use this line more. Uh, because we do see that it creates a significant amount of support, and putting some urgency into the messaging seems to work very well. I think in a lot of environmental problems, your average person thinks, "Well, we'll get to that at some point in time," but I've got other problems I need to think about. I got, I got, you know, health care problems or uh, inflation problems or real problems from real life. When you put an urgency into the message, like we do with "later is too late," it actually has. A really good efficacy. So those are some takeaways. I want to pull up on one other one other thing that I thought was important to share with the overall communications community. Um, that these three things matter a great deal. And we would just encourage and coach people to think about them. One, there is no substitute for simplicity and repetition. We do not need new messages. We need the same simple messages over and over and over and over again. And I think that climate, uh, climate change is such a hard problem, it tends to attract. very bright group of people and this bright group of people sometimes isn't on the search for lots of innovative messages. The data is telling us that simple messages about the cost of climate repeated over and over again, really move people. And I will also say, well, environments like the U S which tend to have a lot of investment in the kinds of things that we do, um, you know, lead people to more segment specific and more nuanced messaging in the vast majority of the world where people haven't heard that much about it. When you explain the problem, you make it a pollution problem, you convey the urgency and you convey the potential costs, you move people significantly. So volume is more important than than a whole bunch of overthinking in terms of what the messages are. Secondly, front door stories, not side door concepts. I mentioned this, but simple, uh, simple messages about climate that both educate and also let people know that it's a concern, it's okay to create worry, Uh, And in fact, it makes sense to create worry because most people don't know enough about this. So go through the front door, talk about climate, convey the nature of the risk uh, and give solutions against that is much more effective than getting super creative about ideas about jobs and prosperity and all those kinds of things. And I think the third thing that we would coach folks for is uh, we all have our uh, uh, place in the world in terms of different organizations, what we're trying to do. We all have our beliefs and we all have our value. We would strongly exhort that we just let data drive the decisions. If we're not sure what the message is, let's ask consumers and let's let's not pick it on our own. What we've tended to do in the climate movement is we've tended to pick things that appeal to 30% of people. What we need is concepts and framings that appeal to 80% of the people. That's where this generational message about love really works. And so we would just encourage us all to be ruthlessly data-driven in marketing. Um, and, uh, and that's what we were hoping to do here. Okay, so um, more, just some resources for you all before we do Q&A, we have this global report. It's can be found on our website. We've got these deep dive analyses on 23 different countries. Uh, and we also have some other resources available. We will send this presentation out to all the attendees. The full report's on our website. In February, we'll have a tool on the website to be able to search the whole data set by country. So the 58,000 respondents by probably 30 minutes of a survey will be available. Um, and you can, use, you can pull up that data and use it. And so if you have an interest in what messages work in Mexico or how do the segment mix change in Mexico, et cetera, et cetera, you'll find that on our website next month. We also have some other resources. Uh, we have a message guide, um, which many people have found quite, quite useful called Talk Like a Human, which is found on the front page of potentialenergycoalition.org. And we have a newsletter um, that Jessica and I write on an ongoing basis called That's Interesting, which you can also sign up for. So hopefully, uh, that is valuable and we are done the presentation i'm going to take it off screen share and we can do some q a
5: fantastic uh hello everyone well really wonderful to have so many of you joining us today i'm going to do two quick housekeeping pieces first is to say thank you so many so much for all your questions we have uh, more than 100 in the chat so we won't be able to answer them all. Uh, we'll do our best in the next 15 minutes or so, um, but please do feel free to email us and we'll share a transcript transcript of this afterwards. Uh, second point is we actually have published the global report. So a lot of the questions we're tackling, some of the details around what are the messages, how did we frame it, uh, which countries are included, was it done in local language? All of those questions you can see in the global report, we'll include the link in here as well um, and share it around afterwards. So hopefully that'll cover a fair bit of it. Uh, but we've still got 15 minutes or so we can actually, uh, do some Q and a with John, Tony and Tom and Jessica. So maybe let's start with, uh, one of the <laughs> eternal questions, John, I'm going to direct this one to you. So we've got quite a few on the theme of impact. So when we talk about moving people, and potential energy talks about measuring impact from our programs and that later is too late move people. How do we define impact? How do we think about that?
2: Yeah, we. I mean, our our um, we hold ourselves accountable to impact in the market. And so 80% of our work is running programs that actually move people, get them to care more, uh, have them be active participants in helping to solve climate change and get engaged. And then 20% is obviously the kind of thought leadership that we're sharing here. So our approach for measuring impact is, is scale statistical measurement in the market, which um you know, we try and do a fair amount of of sharing our results with the broader community because we have a we have a large scale panel that we use. So um think about marketing programs that are running by which we can measure exactly how many ads and which ads we're serving to to precise individuals using digital IDs. We will look at both over time and versus a control cell is uh, is expo- does exposure to these messages actually change the treated population when compared with the control population? And within those tests, we can then look at varying both the message, the frequency, the segmentation, um, and we can also look at decay impacts as to how long the message lasts. So that is a that longitudinal study is probably the, one of the top three uh, largest longitudinal studies, at least in the US on social issues. Uh, that gives us a sense, a sense of to what extent Do the programs work? And I guess I can just assert right now, it works. (laughs) Like we've been running a program with suburban women uh, for over the course of three years. And the size of the segment of these suburban women who are treated uh, by these messages is 25% larger than the size of the segment that is not treated by these messages. So simple ongoing repeated messages over and over again actually really does move people. Now that requires a big large scale statistical uh, toolkit where we're doing in-market measurements. We've done 15 or 16 of these. the closest proxy for that that can be done inexpensively are randomized control trial tests, which is the stuff we did in this research where we're actually looking at um, research instruments where we're showing people a stimulus and then we're showing uh, uh, people a dummy message to see what the difference is in the stimulus. That's where we're getting the 11% from this. That Our research is telling us that the RCTs are pretty closely correlated to the in-market measurement. So when we, re- when we run a large scale global RCT, We've got a decent confidence that we can actually get the similar results with a certain amount of media spend in each country how'd i do Thanks, John. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll link it back to a few
5: more questions in a second but tony i'm going to come to you because one of the questions i'll come to in two parts one is look how do we think about the term climate change and defining it so for example when we test in india how do we think about the actual knowledge and understanding of a term like climate change. And maybe if I link that to the second part, um, which is then when you look at a lot of your research tests, the awareness and the understanding, just how do you how do you compare these two pieces of the competitive message testing on action versus awareness and understanding?
0: Yeah, thanks. Uh, great questions. And I can see a variety of other items in the QA uh, that are related. So Let me take a big step back and say that in terms of our global scale research, and we've seen this pretty consistently over the past decade, is that there's still, we estimate about 2 billion people who've never heard of climate change, okay? So after all the science and all the media coverage and all the geopolitical meetings and so on, you still have a sizable proportion of humanity that knows little to nothing about the issue. And even those that have heard of it often don't understand the fundamentals like they they may understand that it's real and that it's serious, but crucially, and this is another question that's showing up in the chat, many people don't understand that it's caused by the, primarily by the burning of fossil fuels. So yes, there is still some fundamental, let's call it climate literacy that still needs to be done uh, Uh, around the world and including in countries like the United States. There are still many people here in the US that don't fully understand uh, what the causes, the consequences and and certainly what the solutions are. So I would say this, you should see this as part of that larger uh, effort. Um, What's interesting about this, and again, this is a global study, like we're testing like large scale narratives. You know, ultimately if you're running a specific campaign you need to be really strategic. You need to think about, okay, who specifically am I trying to communicate to? What am I asking them to do? Uh, What do they already understand? What don't they understand? What's gonna best engage them? But what we're seeing, and so those are gonna be very campaign specific kinds of of goals and questions. I think what this does show is that there is this larger scale narrative that it turns out everybody, and really just, I see a bunch of questions here about emotions as well, And it's really just to emphasize a word that we flipped through in those slides, and it's the word love. This actually does start with love. What are the people, the places, and the things that people around the world already care about? And then how do we help them connect what is, for most of them, this abstract concept, climate change, to those things that they already care passionately about? And one of the few advantages of climate change as an issue is that it does connect to absolutely everything we care about. Okay, Whether it's your favorite foods or your health or the economy and jobs or national security or whatever. And especially as we're finding here, your love for your own kids. um, All of those are pathways to engaging people on climate change. So I just want to say, it's that emotional core that we often forget, as John was referencing, when we get into, you know, all the important policy debates and economic debates, those are all vitally important, but those are not conversations that are appropriate for the vast majority of humanity.
2: I see a question in the chat that I'd like to, to tackle. Well, I know you're facilitating, Tom, but I'm going to dive in. Yeah. A smart question i worry that the urgency message gets old quick uh boy that cried wolf effect do you have thoughts on how we can combat that and ensure it's a winning message doesn't get old and lose its value um and i'd love to hear tom and tony's view on this but i think it's uh, it's come up in a few time a few times um i have a very simple maxim for this which is speak the truth uh, and then explain people why and give them the give them the underlying reasons for this and when people understand the gravity of the situation and the nature of the cause and the amount of time that we actually do have, they really do respond. And so I I am not in the school that says worry about uh, overdoing urgency. I don't think one should do crisis. uh, And I think you need to back it up with facts and grounding that don't feel overly overly biased, but feel respectful and educational and so forth. But it is an urgent situation. And so the most effective thing to do in marketing is be relevant and truthful. And so we should be urgent about our communications. Uh, and I'm just telling you analytically that putting some urgency into the communications and putting a time bound on it works really well. And you know, I, I do think for the vast majority of people, uh, the real issue is that they don't understand the issue well enough. And, and then, yes, it's to some extent, they don't know what to do, but it's mostly that they don't understand the issue well enough. And understanding the, the urgency of the issue really is effective. Now, what I will say is that in in the in the U.S. context, if it feels like there's a political motivation, crisis, 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 you've got to do something now, we do see backlash. But globally, when we use later is too late and say this is an urgent situation because uh, carbon pollution is dramatically and irreversibly overheating uh, the atmosphere and o- overwarming the planet, it's entirely effective. So I wouldn't worry about later is too late from a out point of view. I think what we need is action now. And once you get the foundations, I guess another thing we've learned is once you get the foundations in people's brains, you get a lasting impact. And so climate foundations are very valuable. And a way to get attention on climate foundations is a message like later is too late.
0: Tom, do you want to say something about
3: that? Or Yeah, just just to come in briefly, I think, I mean, just a couple of things on, on how it relates. And all of this messaging and this testing, obviously, as as Tony said, right, this is very broad brush stuff, right? These are, This is kind of large swathes of the population we're kind of aiming at here. So essentially, this is the type of messaging. If it's aimed at doing something, it's aimed at increasing salience, essentially, right? It's keeping the issue up up high on people's agendas. It's allowing them to engage with it feel like they can be kind of part of that conversation bring them into that conversation give them give them space to be sort of active and 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 engaged on on the issue as we know as i said at the top right that doesn't immediately then produce magical amounts of massively ambitious climate policy right there is a step between that and those and those outcomes which is all of the work that campaigners do and policy experts do and all of those other folks but they I think what the to, the kind of learning, if you will, to take from this is not that there's perfect messages for every space. If you're working on a particular issue or you're trying to get, you know, whatever, a particular bill passed in a particular place or whatever it may happen to be, of course your your messaging is going to going to move around a bit. But I think the, the the right takeaway from this is that there are ways of talking to to people that allow them to engage, that bring them into the conversation, and that just creates that sort of groundswell. That p- politicians and other decision makers and people in positions of power can then build on, right? So you've got that kind of foundational stuff to to, to stand on, and I think that the um, you know, there's it, it's not like there's one perfect answer to any to, to any of this, but I think the really useful outcome from from this data is that there are some of these key places that are that are like there are effective and sort of safe messaging spaces in which to work. I don't think you're going to get a huge amount of kickback um, by operating at these quite kind of these quite kind of meta levels. You'll get some and there's, you know, there's there's extremes in any, you know, you're, you're going to get particular outcomes in smaller pieces of the population. But I think what we've established here is that there's some really useful uh, kind of majority plays which can which just help keep maintain the salience of the issues, maintain the salience of public interest keep people engaged and that that translates back into then obviously support for the, the 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 rest of the work that needs to get done to actually turn that into policy outcomes but i think that's the that's probably the right way to think about sort of where this fits into the mix
0: and if i can just add uh, a little maybe of an academic perspective so what we know about how to engage people around issues of risk is that you need two things one people need to have a clear-eyed understanding of the risk What's the likelihood? What's the severity of the impacts, okay? And that's why we do still have to communicate the reality of the problem. But that needs to then ultimately be coupled with what's called a sense of efficacy, which basically is a way of making sure that people understand that there are solutions, that we have the ability to implement those solutions. And most importantly, if we implement them, it will make a difference. And if you don't have both, then many people were like, look, I got a hundred other things in my life I gotta worry about that I could potentially do something about, I'm gonna go pay attention to those. So really, ultimately you want both. But the crucial thing I think this uh, this research along with lots of other research shows us globally is that you have to recognize that people are at different stages of engagement, okay? There is where the people on this call are and we're like going, we're at a hundred miles an hour, okay? Other people are at 10 miles an hour, okay? And I know we're all in crisis mode. We want people to immediately be at 100 miles an hour, but you have to help them get the stages up there. They have to switch gears, if I can use an old driving metaphor. Uh, They have to uh, uh, be helped to get to where we want to go. And sometimes to get... Uh, somewhere uh, far, you need to go a little slow and meet people where they are and help them engage in the next step and then the next step and then the next step. And so I think that's one of the things that I really like about this later is too late, is that it really does emphasize the urgency, but implied in later is too late is that we need to do things. okay? And that then raises the question in people's mind, okay, now I got it. This is really serious. What can we do? What can I do as an individual? What can we do as a community, as a city, as a province, as a nation, and yes, the world. So it opens up the next and the next and the next uh, stepping stones in uh, in climate action.
2: There's a question in the text that I'd like to address. Um, the climate movement has been using future generations frame for decades. We have not seen the changes that we need. Can you speak to this? I've heard this a few times. Uh, I'm going to contest the fact that the climate uh, movement has been using uh, future generations for decades. I think because the measure of that is, are people hearing the message, not are we delivering the message? And so uh, what I can tell you from the data is that we're seeing significant impact when one uses this message. Uh, Now there's 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 better and worse ways to do it. Like showing a picture of a a real close-up of someone who's affected now is a very good way to Uh, to deliver it as opposed to more of a conceptual argument. But the issue isn't what we're saying, the issue is what they're hearing and they're not hearing it enough. And so we have a message frequency problem and we shouldn't abandon messages because we're not investing enough in them. Uh, Therefore, we need another. Our biggest problem was not investing enough in these messages, not that we necessarily have the wrong messages. And so this is why I was saying the simple and repeated, there's a better way to do future generations than it feeling far off, which was another question in the chat. Uh, it can be your kids today and now, and it's impacting people already, um, and it's going to be worse in the future. But we have a frequency issue much more than a messaging issue, and we should not abandon good messages because we simply haven't invested enough to get them out there. And if this data says anything here. It's that people don't know these messages yet. And so now's the time to distribute them as opposed to every three or four years, try and change to a different thing because we're frustrated that we're not making enough progress. We're not making enough progress because we're not investing enough in messaging, not because we have the wrong messages. Uh, I I just want to
0: amen. And this is said as someone who spent 30 years, you know, doing all this work about who are the right audiences and how do we best frame the message and what messenger to use and what words and all that is important, but it pales in significance to the fundamental problem, which is not quality, but quantity. And so people also I hear this, John has too, that hey, look at the media in the United States, like look at all the coverage of the New York Times and the Washington Post. And yes, it's great. They've doubled the amount of coverage. Let's just say they've doubled the amount of coverage. the, the, if I can use an old metaphor of a volume knob that goes from zero to 11. And yes, that's a spinal tap reference. We've gone from one to two. Okay. That's the doubling, which means that most people still aren't hearing it. Okay. So it's just to say underneath all of this is just quantity.
2: In this we one other question In, in the spirit of this, we got a question, uh, from a few people on the chat. Should we just go ahead and use Later is Too Late? Are you, are you as Potential Energy, encouraging us to do that? Um, we like the message. We have a website called com, and we have a trademark on the message, and we would like you to use it. Uh, we would prefer if you use it with best-in-practice pra- climate communications, so we would prefer if it's used in a non-political way that's extremely human, uh, that meets people where they are, uh, and feels like it's a broad-based agenda that goes after large majorities of the population as opposed to narrower but we would encourage you to use the message any uh closing thoughts
3: just um one addition from me john um uh, so i hope i hope that's provided people with a bit of context for kind of how to think about this and how we hope it's useful as you say it's one part of a suite of tools there's an amazing amount of research obviously on the Yale climate communications uh website if you want to go and have a look at that um, that we uh, GsCC run a site called climate insights Hub where we share a lot of our uh, messaging and polling uh resources uh, you can register for that um on the site this coalition of potential energy um Yale and and GsCC uh you yeah, know we're we're continuing to kind of work on this stuff and and think it through and and continue our, our research efforts uh, but obviously this is designed to help the community um and help us all all be more effective so all of the feedback all of the thoughts on this how it is useful how it isn't useful how more stuff could get done different stuff could get done please do feed it back in because it may also be that we've got other resources um in some of those places that can i've seen there's a bunch of interesting questions in, in the chat that which would would benefit from other um pieces of research that have already been done but yeah just to say thanks very much for taking the time and thanks very much jessica also uh for the great presentation beautiful
2: job we will try and do a continued series of these briefings and so thank you all for signing up you're now on the list we will let you know when the data is available on the website and we'll be back in touch with future uh future briefings that we can do as a group thank you all for joining
1: yes that was rather special john thanks for putting it together yes we reached the end of this episode of climate conversations it was rather special to have you along so thank you so much for your company and remember, later is too late. Now, I'd love you to follow this podcast, because if you do that, you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. Beyond that, I want to know what you think about this podcast, so please email me at number 7 at icloud.com. Good or bad, please let me know. I'm keen to know how I can make this podcast better. Also, I really want you to share this podcast. Put it on your networks. Let everybody know... What's being talked about Who's saying what Why they're saying it What it means And what role they can play What they can say What they can do And what influence they can have Now please don't forget to check out the show notes as There'll be some links in there to things that were discussed today Now until we talk again Please take care Stay safe And please be kind For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle Now you stay safe And take care